Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 246, Response to Branson, Part 4, The Shortcomings of Monarchical Trinitarianism. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know about my upcoming debate with Dr. Michael L. Brown. Dr. Brown is a well-known author, pastor, activist, and radio personality. He's perhaps best known for his series of books called Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. The debate question is, is the God of the Bible the Father alone? And I will be on the positive side. The debate's going to be held in Concord, North Carolina, which is a suburb of Charlotte. It's January 11th at 7 p.m. at Fire Church, and there's a blog post at trinities.org where you can see all this information. There's no charge for admission. I don't know how many people will be there. I expect it'll be a pretty good crowd. I believe that Fire Church is planning to live stream it on YouTube. Also, my dear friends Dan and Sharon Gill from 21st Century Reformation will be there making a recording to post at their excellent website. And also attending will be the inimitable Pastor Sean Finnegan of the Restitutio podcast. So I hope some of you can make it. I'm really looking forward to the debate. It is going to be a real debate, not just a sort of friendly dialogue where you sit in chairs and chat about things. And I'm going to do my best to present a case from the New Testament that the one true God is the Father only. So this is the last part of my long responses to Dr. Branson. I didn't think they were going to be this long when we started. I would like to again thank Dr. Branson for letting me edit and present his material. I really do appreciate his engagement with my work and his arguments against it. The good book says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens his friend. And I do count him as a friend, and I do count this as a friendly debate. And he's really pushed me to clarify some things and to have another look at people like Gregory of Nazianzus. And I really do appreciate it. I can't say that he's changed my mind about a whole lot of things, but it's been good work for me. It's been sort of heavy lifting, working through his many objections. And in this last installment, I am going to give him some things to think about. I'm going to focus on his positive view of the Trinity, which he abbreviates as MT, or monarchical Trinitarianism. I think that at the end of the day, it's not developed enough to be a serious contender for a Trinity theory. Now, maybe I don't fully understand his views, because I haven't read his dissertation on Gregory of Nyssa. Perhaps he thinks that Gregory of Nyssa has all the answers to the problems I'll raise in this episode. If so, I'd like to see that clearly expressed. Maybe that would advance the discussion. He does understand my work pretty well, at least the philosophical aspects of it. Biblical Unitarianism, I don't think he understands as well. Most Biblical Unitarians are not really motivated by philosophical difficulties and obscurities that attend various Trinity theories. Most Biblical Unitarians are motivated by the view that there is no Trinity theory that's taught in the Bible, whereas the Bible does teach that Jesus is a man and that the one God just is the Father himself. So there are some biblical and Christological motivations I think he hasn't um, entirely got his head around. I'm not going to talk much about those here, uh, although I think you'll be able to figure out what some of those are, the biblical motivations, given part of what I'm going to say today. 
So what is this monarchical Trinitarianism? As I understand it, it's basically the following. The one God just is the Father, so the one God and the Father are numerically identical. Also, there are two other beings which are divine, and these two beings are the Son and the Spirit, and they eternally exist and are divine because of God the Father. So he believes in the traditional doctrines, I take it, of generation and procession. Eternally, God is causing the Son to exist and to be divine, and also eternally, in somehow a different way, God is causing the Spirit to exist and to be divine. Now, what I've talked about so far in this response is, in my view, sorry, it's not really Trinitarian because the model disavows the central idea of any Trinitarian theology, which is the idea of a tripersonal God. By starting off by identifying the one God as the Father alone, I think it's a Unitarian view. But, you know, you could argue, let's not quibble about labels. Well, as I argued last time, I do think the labels matter, but laying that aside, in this episode, I'm going to focus on what I think are some real substantial theological difficulties for MT. Here's one obvious difficulty, and at least in this presentation, I didn't see that Dr. Branson did anything to address this obvious problem. The view is expressly monotheistic in that it says that the one God just is the Father and not anybody else. And yet, at the same time, the view seems to imply tritheism. Why? Because since he's the one God, the Father is a God, and since they are two additional beings, each of which has the divine essence, it looks like the Son is a second God and the Holy Spirit is a third God. So it's expressly monotheistic, but it also seems to imply tritheism. And what? What's up with that? That, I think, is the problem that Basil of Caesarea faced, but it's been a long time since Basil of Caesarea, and I don't think you can really have a serious contender in this field unless you can address the monotheism question in some convincing way. Another problem it has is that it's subordinationist in that the Son and the Spirit seem to be two different beings and also two lesser beings than God. They're arguably not as great as God. They're arguably not as divine as God. Why? Because their existence is caused, and because their divinity is derivative. In the rest of this episode, I'm going to develop those worries in some pretty careful ways and actually put out an argument and an inconsistent tetrad for Dr. Branson and for, well, all of us to chew on as we try to think through the issues involved in this theory. Okay, so why does he hold to monarchical Trinitarianism? Well, one thing is that he is suspicious of easy breezy mystery appeals. And I entirely agree with him about that. Mystery appeals seem to be just pretty much special pleading. You're saying, well, the view doesn't make sense, does it? Or here's a really obvious difficulty for the view. But hey, that's why it's so wonderfully mysterious, because it has that difficulty. Are you taking the kind of thing, uh, such as an apparent contradiction or an unintelligible claim, you're taking the very things that would count as deficiencies in anybody else's theology, and you're saying, well, yeah, but in my theology, those are virtues. It's indulgent. It's kind of intellectually lazy. Interestingly, it has no foundation whatsoever in the New Testament. Never in the New Testament do you see any theological view being defended as a mystery. 
in the New Testament, a mystery is something that used to be unknown that is now known, that's now been revealed through the, the ministry of Christ, basically. Honestly, mystery appeals are kind of the domain of theoretical scoundrels. Dr. Branson agrees with me about that, and so he doesn't want to help himself to these kinds of appeals. Great. Wonderful. That's one virtue of MT, although I don't see how he's going to get around the tritheism problem without saying it's a mystery, but maybe I just don't know what he's going to say about that. So it doesn't uh, egregiously appeal to mystery. The main motivation, I think, is that he thinks this is the Eastern Orthodox view. Now, as I've been forced to review Orthodox theologians on the Trinity as a part of interacting with Dr. Branson, it's reinforced my previous view that there isn't really a single Eastern Orthodox view of the Trinity. You've got Mysterians there, you've got three self-Trinitarians there, I think even there are going to be some one-selfers there, but there just isn't a distinctive view. He argues that this is I don't think it is, M.T. I think it's a small minority view. His real argument, I think, should not be with the likes of me, but it should be with his fellow Eastern Orthodox theologians. According to Dr. Branson's classification, what he calls egalitarian Trinity theories are just a big mistake. They're due to Augustine, and they're really just not part of Greek tradition. At least they weren't classically part of Greek-speaking theology. And I think most Orthodox theologians do not think that. So he's kind of like me, uh, trying to be a reformer, but not just of Christians generally, but he's trying to reform Eastern Orthodoxy. I don't think that he thinks he's doing that, but that's what I think he's doing, because it seems pretty clear to me that his monarchical Trinitarian is a minority view within Eastern Orthodoxy. He thinks it's the Eastern Orthodox view, I take it, because he says it's the view of the Cappadocian Fathers. In a previous part of my response, I argued, well, actually, the Cappadocian Fathers aren't all saying the same thing, even though they're within that latter-day Nicene movement. I think Basil doesn't believe in a tripersonal God, and I argued that Gregory of Nazianzus definitely does believe in a tripersonal God, and then I abstained on Gregory of Nyssa. So, I mean, there isn't one view of the Cappadocian Fathers, and I'm not sure why you would seize on, say, Basil of Caesarea or Gregory of Nyssa and say, that's the Eastern view. How can you flash freeze Eastern Catholic Christianity and say, well, it really expressed its real view right here in these couple of guys. I mean, why not Origen? Why not later people? Why not some of the current day people I quoted who believe in a tripersonal God? Another virtue of MT is that Dr. Branson argues that it allows for most analytic models of the Trinity. I don't want to go too far into this. I didn't find this convincing. What he did was he took a couple of types of Trinity theories or something close to them, and then uh, he introduced some really doubtful assumptions. And then he said, well, on that really doubtful assumption, then you could hold both to MT and to this other view. So he took not any social trinity theory by people like Swinburne or Hasker, for instance. He said, well, let's take a toy social trinity theory on which God is supposed to be a set. And then on a lot of modern set theories, a member of a set can be identical to the whole set. So maybe then God could be both the set and the father. Well, that's a pretty big if, 
right? It just seems to me obviously impossible that God is a set. So I'm not sure what this is really supposed to show about the compatibility of social Trinitarian theories and this monarchical Trinitarian theory. On the face of it, they're just not compatible at all. The monarchical view says that the one God just is the Father, and the social theories say that the one God is somehow the community or the thing that's composed of the three of them. They actually have a hard time saying how God could be the three of them. But anyway, I mean, it's Trinitarian. Social theories interpret the one God as in some sense being composed of the Father, Son, and Spirit, or having them as members of a group or members of a family or something like that. Why do I think it's crazy to claim that God is a set? Because a set is an abstract object by definition. By definition, abstract objects do not have causal powers. By definition, God has causal powers. For instance, he could cause the cosmos to exist. Or on Dr. Branson's views, God can eternally cause the Son and the Spirit. Right? So he can't be a set. He can't be an abstract object. That's just, that's just nonsense. It's like saying that God is a property or that God is an event or something like that. It's just a, it's a patent mistake. He argues that maybe constitution Trinitarianism could be consistent with MT so long as you allow that the thing can constitute itself. I don't want to go into that here. Maybe out of the recent analytic Trinity theories, maybe that's the one that's most similar to MT, but that's another topic for another day. So he urges that MT will be compatible with any analytic model on which nothing is true of the one God that isn't true of the Father and vice versa. Yeah, but insofar as most of those models hold the one true God to be the Trinity, there are then going to be differences between the one true God and the Father. Bottom line is that, as far as I can tell, monarchical Trinitarian is not clearly compatible with any actual analytic theory. And I doubt that any proponent of those theories will want monarchical Trinitarianism precisely because it leaves out the idea of a triune God or even just a multi-personal God. So show me any version of social Trinitarian theory or constitution Trinitarianism which will be accepted by any Trinitarian who doesn't already accept MT. When the Trinity's podcast returns, the issues of independence and subordinationism In this portion of today's episode, I'm going to discuss something that I call the independence tetrad. So a tetrad is a group of four claims, and these are an inconsistent tetrad. It's just impossible that all four of them are true. So you have to pick which one you want to deny. Of course, you could deny more than one, but the point is that you have to deny at least one. And if you assume any three of these, it follows that the remaining one is false. So you may have to look at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org to fully follow this, but here it goes. First claim is, the Son is eternally generated by the Father. Second claim, if a being is generated by another, it exists because of that other. Third claim, full divinity implies not existing because of any other. And then the fourth claim is that the Son is fully divine. 
So you might want to pause the recording here and convince yourself that if you accept any three of those, it logically follows that the fourth one is false. I'm not going to go through all the combinations right here. It would take too long. Okay, hopefully you paused and studied those four and convinced yourself that they really are an inconsistent tetrad. So why would anybody accept these? And how much justification is there for these? You would accept that the Son is eternally generated by the Father. I think you have to accept that if you do, based purely on church tradition. It's totally not in the New Testament at all. The reason you'd accept the second, if a being is generated by another, it exists because of that other. I think that's just true by the definition of the terms. It seems to be an analytic and necessary truth, right? Generation is just supposed to be a sort of causing here. Uh, and we're just stipulating along with Trinitarians that it's a kind of causing that doesn't amount to creating. It doesn't imply creating. So if you're generated, you're not created, but you are caused. This is all supposed to be compatible with it. an eternal, changeless causing. Okay. So if a being is generated, which is to say caused by another, then it exists because of that other. Right. I mean, that's just true by definition. You really can't deny two. Uh, something we know by reason. Third one, full divinity implies not existing because of any other. This one is really based on a long tradition of perfect being theology and speculation that surrounds things like cosmological arguments and ontological arguments for God's existence. But also, I think it's just constitutive of the monotheistic idea of a God. Here's one way to see it. If your local village atheist, very likely a 16-year-old white boy, says, Ha ha, I have a deadly objection for you. Who caused God? If you think God caused the world, well, who caused God then? Well, you know, the joke's on you, son, because God, as understood by monotheism, implies existing independently of anything else. God, just by definition, can't be caused to exist. To ask what is the cause of God is kind of like asking what's north of the North Pole. Like, you just don't get what the North Pole is supposed to be. Another way to put it is that full divinity implies being ultimate, being something that could be the ultimate source of other things, but itself doesn't have a source. So, three would be justified by reason. It's not obviously true by definition, but it's a very plausible piece of speculation, and um, it's a thing which a lot of theologians and Christian philosophers will accept. And then the fourth claim is that the Son is fully divine. Some, of course, try to base this on scripture. Really, I think if you accept it, you have to base it on tradition, starting with the 325 statement that the Son is the same Usia as the Father. The named Usia, the named essence there, is divinity. Okay, so if you can't have all four of these because it's inconsistent to affirm all four, which one are you going to get rid of? Well, on the face of it, you should get rid of the one that you have the least reason to accept. One is you could accept the first three and then deny the fourth, that the Son is fully divine. This was, in fact, the earlier Catholic way. This was the main way of getting out of this before Nicaea. They didn't usually emphasize it, but it's usually there in their writings. I'm talking about people like Origen, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Novation, people like that. Of course, if you want to be in the Trinity Club, you can't deny four. Another way is to deny one, deny the view that the Son is eternally generated by the Father. 
This is what some modern Protestants do because they realize that Scripture gives no support at all to the traditional doctrine of eternal generation. They don't want to give up two or three, and so for them it comes down to one versus four. And the way they look at it is the Son being fully divine is kind of more foundational or more central to Trinitarian theology than is the claim that the Son is eternally generated. That's controversial, of course, but they are, I think, indisputably correct that Scripture offers no justification for one. So if you want to be a Protestant who upholds Trinitarian tradition or nearly enough, one way out is to deny one. Okay, what about the remaining two options? You can deny two. Two says that if a being is generated by another, it exists because of that other. Now this, to me, looks like just the worst possible move, because two, as I said, is true by definition. I would just diss this as kind of Mysterian obfuscation. They would say, well, generation, I mean, who knows what that really is? It's not going to be the same thing in God as it is in humans. So we really have no idea whether or not generation implies existing because of the one that generated you. Now, that's really poorly motivated. It just always did mean a kind of causing. The remaining option is to deny three. And while Branson's views don't firmly make him deny four, he's kind of unclear. I assume that what he would really want to do is to follow the Neo-Nicene way. What they do is deny three, that full divinity implies not existing because of any other. Say, oh no, you could be fully divine, and yet you could be caused to exist by another being. What? I thought we were talking about the kind of divinity that a monotheistic God would have that would make him ultimate and unoriginated and fit to be the ultimate source of all else. So one way to put it is that the Neo-Nicene view is to deny that deity or divinity imply aseity, that is existing through oneself and not because of any other. Now, if the Neo-Nicene view is to be understood as Dr. Branson thinks, this is kind of strange because all three of them presumably have the divine essence, and yet only the Father is the one true God. The Father just is, that is to say, is numerically identical to the one God. So what is it that's different about him? Um, it looks like what's different is that he exists independently of anything else. He doesn't get his existence or his deity from anyone else. So, I mean, why isn't that just built into the definition of divine or fully divine? I don't know. I mean, it looks like you're saying that in the highest or fullest sense, there's only one who's divine, which is the Father. And then there are these, you could say divine, but anyway, lesser beings. They're not God. They're not divine in the same way as the Father is. So this problem of subordinationism is really intrinsic to any Logos theory. And for this reason, you see some very learned Trinitarians, like for instance, William Lane Craig, just disavowing any Logos theory. So Logos theory is a precursor to Trinitarian theology that got started in the middle of the 100s. I mean, I think it really had a Platonic motivation. They thought that the Father, that is the one true God, was too transcendent to directly interact with the created realm. And so for him to interact, he needed an in-between being that was neither created nor uncreated. And so he must just sort of emanate out of himself at some point a being through which he can interact indirectly with the world. 
The early Logos theorists referred to this other being, the Logos of John 1, they thought it was. They referred to this being as another God or as a second God. And they implicitly held, and sometimes were fairly explicit actually, that this was a lesser being. So the Logos, they called it God and our God and so on, but various of them held that it was some of the following. With respect to God, this Logos was less in power, less in knowledge, less in goodness. And before Origen, most of them accepted that the Father was literally older than the Logos. That at some point, when it was time to get around to creating, God then uh, expressed his inner word and then brought into being a second uh, but lesser divine being. And then some of them also speculate about the Holy Spirit emanating out of the Son. So you got one, two, three, the first greatest being, second greatest, and third greatest. That's what you see in origin. So this idea that the Logos is a lesser being and even not as old as the Father, this was not something that Arius came up with on his own. This was an old strain of Catholic theology in his day. Yet people tend to deny this. They tend to fixate on the fourth century and just ignore that Justin Martyr, for instance, assumes a two-stage Logos theory where this second lesser God comes into being when it's time to create, basically. So subordinationism just means that the Son and or the Holy Spirit are less, uh, less great, less divine. They're metaphysically less than the Father. And so there are different kinds of subordination. They could be less in power, knowledge, and goodness. And they could be less in this way, failing to be independent. So the Father doesn't depend on anything else for his existence. He doesn't get his deity from anywhere. And according to these theories about eternal generation and procession, or even time-bound generation and procession, these other two are dependent beings. They depend on God for their existence. The way that this strategy of denying three denying that full divinity implies not existing because of any other, the way that that became part of Catholic tradition was basically that the latter-day Nicenes overreacted, I would say, to the views of Eunomius, who was another Catholic bishop. To make a long story short, Eunomius was an anti-Nicene, and he thought it was a mistake to equalize the Father and the Son because that would result in two gods. And he held that it was essential to the Father to exist independently, to be ungenerated. In fact, at least at an earlier stage, he said this was the essence of God. Now that seems to be going a little far, saying that you can comprehend the entire essence of God and that it's this one thing, independence, basically. But that's what he said. And so the Cappadocian fathers overreacted against this and said, no, you can't understand anything of the essence of God. Wow. Okay. That's another conversation, but anyway, they just decided to divorce divinity from aseity right there. If you can't understand anything of the essence of God, you can't understand that that essence includes independence or just not existing because of anything else, or if you like existing independently. Again, this looks like it's part of the monotheistic idea of God, so it's a pretty steep cost to one's Trinity theory to make this move, right? In order to ensure that Jesus is divine, you've now changed the concept of divinity so it doesn't include independence. Okay, in his presentation, Dr. Branson does not deal adequately with this concern about subordinationism. 
I mean, it looks like subordinationism runs counter to the intent of Nicaea and Constantinople and a whole lot of later Trinitarian statements, right? When they say that the Son is divine, they mean divine as much as the Father is. They don't mean divine in a lesser sense. So this is a widespread concern by Trinitarians, and it's not enough to quote patristic scholars who just dismiss these concerns and poo-poo this worry about subordinationism and say that subordinationism is a scare word. Well, maybe it is a scare word, maybe it isn't, but if anybody goes around saying that the Father is divine in a way that the Son isn't, Trinitarians will set upon that person and denounce them as a, quote, Arian. And that this repeatedly happens all through Christian history since the time of the Arian controversy shows you that it's a real central concern of the tradition. So it's really something that would have to be addressed. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Have I painted myself into a corner by endorsing the views of Samuel Clark? So another charge that Dr. Branson makes against me is that, kind of paradoxically, I have endorsed the theology of the famous Anglican theologian and philosopher, Dr. Samuel Clark, while at the same time objecting to Eastern Orthodox views, people like Basil of Caesarea, even though he thinks their theologies are basically the same. Now, are the theologies basically the same? They're very similar. They both interpret the Father, Son, and Spirit to be beings. That is, persons or selves, like intelligent agents. So that's very similar. I think Clark wanted to say that in some sense the Spirit and the Son were divine. He also endorses traditional speculations about the Son and Spirit mysteriously emanating from the Father. So he's willing to countenance traditions about generation and procession. So yeah, on the face of it, they're very similar. However, There's a crucial difference, which I'll get to in a minute. But the first thing to get clear about is that what I have endorsed about Clark's view in a couple of papers is really just this. I endorse that it is really monotheistic. And I stand by that point. It's not monotheistic in the way that Dr. Branson's MT is monotheistic, where it's monotheistic and it looks like it immediately also implies tritheism. It's monotheistic, and it has a principled reason for denying tritheism. The difference is that for Clark, being fully divine implies aseity. It implies existing independently of any other being. He usually expresses this by saying that the Father exists necessarily. So for Clark, the one true God just is the Father, And he has decided to eternally share as much of his divinity as could, in principle, be shared. Of course, it's in principle impossible to share aseity, or independence. In principle, you can't give rise to another being which is independent of any other being, right? What I just said is a contradiction. So some divine attributes, he thinks, cannot possibly be passed on to another. And among those is existing independently. 
And so he just thinks that the Son and the Spirit are divine, but not in the same way that the Father is. So because there's a kind or degree of divinity which only one being has, it's monotheistic. That he has two lesser divine beings, well, they're not divine in the way that the one God is divine. So it looks to me like it really is monotheism. So Clark would follow the strategy of denying for, denying that the Son is fully divine. And uh, he would have a pretty principled reason for doing that. Now, I think Clark could be a little clearer about this in his book, The Scripture Doctrine of the Trinity, but I think he says more in some of his follow-up writings. So, he was especially dogged by this one patristic scholar named Daniel Waterland, who wrote a series of books denouncing Clark as an Arian and a heretic and so on. Waterland was a very learned guy, but he was a hardcore Mysterian. Anyway, Clark responds at length a couple of times to Waterland, and in one of them, this is from Clark's response called The Modest Plea, and etc. continued, or a brief and distinct answer to Dr. Waterland's queries relating to the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, this is query three on page 455 of the edition of Clark's Writings on the Trinity that I've reprinted. He says, in answer to some of Waterland's questions, the truth is, the word God, in its absolute and primary sense, signifies the first cause. Even him who alone has all perfections and all dominion absolutely in and of himself, unoriginal, underived, and independent on any. Otherwise, it would follow either that God was not a being of all perfections, or else to be the first and unoriginate cause of all things is no perfection. But now in Scripture, the same word, in other words, God, is sometimes used in a different sense, namely, to denote him who is not himself the first cause, but by whom the first cause produced all things. So Clark accepts Logos theory. He thinks when Paul says uh, all things are from the one God, the Father, and all things are through the one Lord, the Son, he thinks that's talking about the Genesis creation. So he thinks God had to create indirectly through this other lesser divine being. So that is monotheism. It's not biblical Unitarianism. It's a kind of Unitarianism. It's what I would call subordinationist Unitarianism. It is similar to Dr. Branson's views, but it has that crucial difference like I explained. Does Dr. Branson want to follow Dr. Clark as against the Cappadocians and say that only the Father is divine in the highest sense, and so deny that the Son and the Spirit are fully divine? I kind of doubt it, but that's one way he could go. And, you know, that's the way that Origen went. Origen had the triad being the three greatest beings. The greatest being is God. The second greatest being is this Logos. He thinks the Son. And then the third greatest being is the Spirit. So Nicene theology, whether it's the Creed from 325 or the Creed from 381, contains the phrase, true God from true God. And the first true God refers to the Son, and the second true God refers to the Father. Well, that's puzzling on the face of it, isn't it? It sounds like there are two different gods. There are two different ones in that picture, right? Each of which is being referred to as true God. How could there be two gods? Yet at the same time, they start off by saying that the one God is the Father. And by the time you get to the 381 Council, I claim that they think the shared essence makes the three to be one God or within one God. 
And so now it's just a big mess. Yep, that's Trinitarian tradition for you. It's a big, confusing mess. Here's another way to see that Nicene theology seems to not be consistent with monotheism. And so I offer this to all of you and to Dr. Branson for you to reply to. I know how I would escape from this argument. I don't like the conclusion, so I want to get off the bus before it gets to the destination. But here's the argument. And again, you might want to look at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org and just walk through it with me. Premise one, Jesus is divine. That is, he has the essential quality of divinity. Two, if something has the essential quality divinity, it is a God. So it follows that Jesus is a God. Add in another premise, the Father is divine. Okay, it follows from that, that the Father is a God. That follows from steps two and four. So step five is the Father is a God. Six, Jesus and the Father are either the same God or they are two different gods. That's an independent premise. Well, sure, it's got to be one of those two, right? If they're both gods, then how many gods are we talking about? Are we naming the same God twice? Are we talking about two different gods? Seven, if Jesus and the Father were the same God, they could not differ in any way. That's a premise. It's just that a thing can't at one time be and not be the same way. A thing can't differ from itself at a single time. That's just obvious, right? So if two things are the same God, they can't differ. Okay, eight, another premise, but the Father and Son do differ. Nine, another conclusion. Therefore, Jesus and the Father are not the same God. That follows from seven and eight. Ten, therefore, Jesus and the Father are two different gods. That follows from nine. Therefore, eleven, there are at least two gods. That follows from ten. Jesus and the Father are two different gods. There have to exist at least two gods. And then the last conclusion, 12, therefore, monotheism is false. That follows from 11, because 11 says that there are at least two gods. Now, obviously, I don't endorse this argument. The point of this argument is to just lay out a chain of reasoning and say either you can accept the conclusion or you can deny a premise. Here's the interesting thing. I think Dr. Branson surely must agree with the independent premises. I think he agrees that Jesus is divine. I think he agrees that Jesus and Father have to either be the same God or two different gods. I think he agrees that if they're the same God, they couldn't differ in any way. And I think he agrees that the Father and Son do definitely differ. I won't go into all the reasons why I think he has to agree with those, but I think they're pretty clear reasons. The fifth independent premise in this argument is, two, this says if something has the essential quality divinity, it is a god. I think he has to agree with it because it's true by definition. An essence is supposed to be the qualities or quality such that if you have them, that's sufficient for your being a thing of a certain kind. That's just what an essence is. If you have the essence of caninity, you're a dog. If you have the essence of humanity, you're a human. If you have the essence divinity, you're a god. So I would like to invite my friend Dr. Branson to let us know which premise he denies. I'll put my cards on the table. I deny one. I stop it right at the beginning. I think Jesus is not divine. If the kind of divinity that we're talking about is the kind that the one true God has, 
if it's some lesser kind, okay, you tell me what this lesser kind is, and then I'll tell you if I agree that Jesus has it. None of the words in this argument are ambiguous. We're using divine in the same sense throughout. We're using the word essence in the same sense throughout. We're using the word God in the same sense throughout, etc. There's no funny business with the terminology here. Okay, which can Dr. Branson deny? I'm pretty sure he doesn't want to say that monotheism is false or that there are two gods. He's going to have to get off the bus somewhere before he gets to the end, to step 12 for sure. So where is that? And of course, again, really the whole thing is a difficulty for any Nicene theology, which is a theology that insists that Jesus and the Father are homoousion, that they share a single usia, that is to say the essence divinity. Okay, but that means being a god, right? Earlier, as I mentioned before, there were mainstream theologians who would just say the Son was a second god, another god, in effect, a lesser god. Well, you know, that's consistent with monotheism. Any kind of monotheism is going to allow for lesser divine beings, such as angels. And so why not these other lesser kind of divine beings that the Son and Spirit have been supposed to be by some? When the Trinity's podcast returns, I finish with some big questions for Dr. Branson. just a minute, I'm going to finish by asking Dr. Branson some difficult questions. But first, I wanted to just briefly respond to his argument that was presented in my part three, Trinity's podcast 241. It's an argument that has the conclusion that the Son of God is divine. My response to that argument in brief is, I don't see why any Christian should accept his premise for there that fatherhood is essential to God. He seemed to think that if you denied that, somehow you'd be making a separation between the Father and God. That's not true. I can say that my father was born in 1939 in California. Of course, he wasn't my father back then. But what I said, that my father was born in 1939, is true. That one who at a later time became the father of Dale Tuggy was, back in 1939, given birth. So, to say the one God is the Father is to say that the one that Jesus calls Father is the one true God, and no one else is the one true God. Right, but it doesn't follow that that he was necessarily or essentially the Father of the Son. So, I just don't see a problem there. Fatherhood should not be an essential divine attribute. I don't see how you'd get that either from Scripture or from reason. So, to conclude, some big questions for Dr. Branson. The first one is this, why, based on the New Testament, should anyone think that the Son is divine in the way that God is divine? That is to say, essentially omnipotent, essentially omniscient, essentially omnibenevolent, essentially immortal, essentially immune to temptation. I don't see how you'd get any of those things from the New Testament. The Son of God, the man Jesus in the New Testament, is not essentially omnipotent, but seems to be somewhat limited in power. He's not essentially omniscient because there is a time there when he's not omniscient. He doesn't know the day or hour of his future return. 
If you say that he's all good, well, I don't think that the son sinned, but whether he's good independently or good in the same way that the father is, is another question. The son was not immune to temptation because he was tempted and he came through with flying colors, but he really was tempted. It wasn't just a show. God, by his essence, is immortal. He couldn't die. He couldn't lose his divine life. Right? It's not just the point that he couldn't not exist. That's another divine attribute of necessary existence. But immortality is that you can't lose your life. God couldn't lose his life. It doesn't depend on any body. It doesn't depend on having oxygen and food and things like that. And I think it's impossible for God to commit suicide. So I think it's essential to the one God to be immortal. But it wasn't essential to Jesus that he was immortal. Jesus, I think, has been raised to immortality now, but previous to that, he was not immortal because he died. So I don't see how you get that the Son is divine in a way that God is divine. Another issue is authority, right? God has all authority of himself. He doesn't get it from anybody. Jesus has his authority given to him by God. In fact, he has his position given to him by God post-resurrection. Does he think it's really derivable from the New Testament that the Son is divine in the way that God is divine? I don't think it is. It looks like he's just going to have to depend on the authority of councils here. If he does that, then he has a pretty pressing need to show that two natures theory somehow is going to make all this work out. I don't think it does. If you want to see why I think that, you can check out my presentation called Clarifying Catholic Christologies. I'll put a link to that on the blog post for this episode. Another big question is, why doesn't a theology with three beings, each of whom has the nature or essence divinity, imply the existence of three gods? Given that there are universal essences, by definition, a god is a being which has the essence divinity. That maybe is the most pressing problem for his account. Final big question Isn't an essence just whatever property your properties it is which are necessary and sufficient for being a thing of a certain kind? If that's what an essence is, then the kind here would be a divine being, a god. So the essence of divinity or deity or godhood would be some property or properties such that having them guarantees being a god. And also they're required for being a god. So they're sufficient, but they're also necessary. If he agrees with that, then that's going to limit his options in responding to the argument from Nicene theology against monotheism. If he doesn't agree with that, well, then what does he mean by essence? Because I take it that his monarchical Trinitarianism is supposed to be built to agree with that central Nicene claim. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. There'll be one more podcast in December. After that, I'm going to hunker down and work on my debate materials for the debate in January. I assume that we haven't heard the last from our friend, Dr. Branson, so I hope maybe sometime in 2019 we can feature some more of him, or maybe I can interview him about Gregory of Nyssa. Um, These things will probably take a while to think through, so we don't do these things in a hurry. It's proper to take time and to reflect and uh, think critically about our theological views. So again, thanks to him. Next week, it won't be me dialoguing with Dr. Branson, but it'll be a really special treat, and I'm planning on it being both an audio and a video podcast. So stay tuned for that.
This week's thinking music has been the track Toddler Guitarist by Admiral Bob. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.